All right, hey everybody, I just wrapped up another episode. This time, bust out the whiteboard, talked about two different topics that are somewhat related. First, how do I go about choosing a new area to elk hunt? How do I pick different areas and what do I look for and, and just how do I go about that initial process? I didn't go into the weeds totally on that topic, but I covered it pretty well. And then, as a follow-up to the previous episode, Okay, what happens on the top of the mountain after the snow melts off? How do different mountains and the different, the different characteristics of different mountains affect vegetation quality, elk movement, etc. in years where maybe we have a lot of rain versus in years where all of a sudden we don't have any summer rain, all right? So if you are interested in that and you think you might be able to use some of that information, well, check it out. Check that there. All right, so let's tackle a couple of questions that have come in recently that always come up every year. And we're going to cover two topics, I think, in this episode. Uh, they're somewhat related. And I say somewhat related because they both have to deal with mountains and finding elk. All right? So this, these questions, and let me just take a real quick segue real quick, and, I'm, and I, I, I mean this real quick. If you're watching this and you're a subscriber, please, by all means, you can, get, you can reach out and ask a question however you want, you know, wherever you want. But please, by all means, put it in the forums. Now, I know our forums don't get excessively hammered with activity. But the forums are a great place to put your questions because A, I can see them and they're all nicely neat in one package in one area. But more importantly, we've got a couple thousand people watching all this stuff, looking all this stuff. There's somebody in there that very well may be able to chime in and provide their input, their opinions, that are solid, that are good, that, that, that provide a good quality addition to the discussion. You guys and gals don't need to always rely on me. I, I am, I send me your questions. I will answer them or try to answer them. But in no way do I want you guys and gals to think I don't value your input because there's a lot of you on there on here that have been hunting elk for years and are extremely successful or at the at the very least you bring a different perspective to the table. So don't ever be afraid to jump on there and provide your opinion. Please, by all means, do so. More heads tackling a problem, thinking about a problem, are better than just one, in my opinion. All right? So by all means, ask on the forums, fire away on the forums, and then don't hesitate if you see a forum post to chime in and provide your two cents if you think you have something valuable to add to that person's question, all right? So, with that being said, the two things that I want to tackle today, one, the question came in, this was just pretty, this was just recent, is a truncated version of how do I find, how do I go about finding elk for me personally and where I hunt? Not asking for where I hunt, but how do I go about choosing a specific area? And, and the, the relevant point that this individual is looking for is, 
they're getting tired of hunting steep mountains. They're, they have seen some of the areas where I'm hunting where it's rolling and flatter or, you know, it's a little bit more manageable terrain or what it seems to be is more manageable terrain, a little bit easier to walk up and down the mountain without just absolutely killing yourself. All right. Um, so that question, how do I go about finding those areas that I want to hunt and that, that I'm going to hunt for myself and some of these easier areas, number one. Number two, about a, a follow-up to the episode three where we talked about the snowpack in Colorado this year. And quite honestly, this is a follow-up talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, some years it seems like if it's dry, the, the elk don't even go up to the alpine. This year, obviously, we've got good moisture. They're going to be up on the alpine. But then some people were talking about the fact that they're looking at it and it's starting to dry up. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought we had a big snowpack. Why, is, why are things drying up? Okay. Not all mountains are created equal. And then the type of mountain that you're hunting and the elevation that you're hunting is going to go a long way. And the type of weather patterns that come across there are going to go a long way in dictating what happens on that mountain from a, a vegetation standpoint and an elk activity standpoint. So let's talk about that. Again, because there's so many different habitats, a lot of people get caught up in the backcountry style hunts because that's what you see most often as the sexy hunts these days on YouTube or full draw, you know, the full draw film tour style you know, the film festival, I guess full, full draw film tour is a, is a, I guess that's a brand. So let's just say the film tour style of videos that you watch. Okay. So first and foremost, and I'm going to, we're going to try the old whiteboard situation and a little bit of a different microphone to see, got this one running because I'm going to go ahead and record it in the computer, but I've got a different one. I've got the shotgun microphone up here. Hopefully it'll do a little bit better while I'm a little bit more animated and up and moving and doing some different things. Okay. So first question, how do I go about finding elk and, and where do I, how do I choose my areas and how do I find some of these lower elevation, easier terrain aspects? Well, first and foremost, when you watch some of those videos on the website and the terrain seems easy, a lot of those are going to be in Arizona and they're going to be in Unit 9, Arizona. Unit 9, Arizona, there's a reason why that is called a gentleman's hunt. Okay, Unit 9, Arizona is lower elevation ponderosa pine and it's on essentially a mountain. Basically, it's on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And the south, believe it or not, the south rim of the Grand Canyon is the highest point in the unit. Everything slopes away to the south from there. So it goes from ponderosa pines all the way down into the pinion juniper country and it's just a long tapering slope so if you're looking at that understand that's in unit 9 arizona that is a i mean geez op was it take 20 some years to draw that tag it's a great area because of the quality of animals that it can have in it it's just the just the way it's managed but it's no different than a lot of areas that, as far as the elk are concerned, it's no different than a lot of areas which you'll see in heavily limited areas in Colorado, heavily limited areas, you know, trophy managed areas in New Mexico or Wyoming or, you know, Utah. It's just the way that area is managed. It just so happens to be in the Kaibab National Forest, 
which is a little bit lower elevation. And the reason why I happen to be there is A, that's where I started out long ago with Jay Scott. He hunted in there uh, for, well, he's hunted there for Chisel Pete a number of years, guided there. Um, but that's where I started. But I bounced around a couple different areas in, in Arizona. But the thing is, I've always loved Ponderosa Pine. I, I love Ponderosa Pine forests. That's a longer discussion of why, but it, it I fell in love with them early on in my education. I fell in love with them as soon as I, the very moment I got to experience them. I fell in love with the diversity of habitat and, and all the wildlife that's in there. I love Ponderosa Pine habitat, the uh, Ponderosa Pine communities, all right? And so if I have the choice, apples to apples on elk, I can go hunt elk over here, or I can go hunt elk over there. One is Ponderosa Pine communities. One is Alpine, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of times I'm, I'm going to the Ponderosa Pines. I just prefer, I, I just enjoy that habitat type um, for all sorts of reasons. Not just the elk, all right? Not just the elk, for all sorts of reasons. So that's why you will see a lot of my videos in Ponderosa Pine Habitat, which are lower by definite, by, by, by default, by necessity. They're a lower elevation habitat, all right? So if you want to hunt lower elevation, if you want to hunt Ponderosa Pines, you're going to be in lower elevation habitats. Lower elevation habitats oftentimes are going to be a little bit uh, easier on the knees and legs, so to speak, as far as how rugged they are. Now, don't, don't misconstrue that to say you can't find some rugged, nasty ponderosa pine habitat. Oh, no, 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 because a lot of that habitat ends up being in this canyon country, and I mean, you can, you know, southwest Colorado, you can get some places where, yeah, you'll get on those mesas, you get up on those tabletops, you get up on the tops of those ridges, and it's beautiful walking. And as soon as you start to drop off the side of that ridge, she just goes off, like right now. And it may, oops, and it may drop a long ways. And then you've got oak brush and service, but you, you might have, I mean, oak brush and choke cherry and, and all sorts of other brush species in there mixed in with it. Doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It's just a little bit lower elevation. Okay. So 9,000 and under generally is what we're looking at. So, well, let's just, let's just float it at about that 9,000 foot mark. So it's not saying that it's going to be easy. It's just lower elevation, different type of terrain, different type of habitat. Now, but that's just me. There are a lot of people that like that backcountry. They love the Alpine. There are some people that love those mixed Aspen communities. There's some people that love that, you know, just below Timberline, those big spruce fir communities that are just thick jungles, just big old honking trees, just towering old growth forests, little openings. I mean, everybody is different in what they like and what, in their mind's eye, constitutes elk habitat. You know, Pacific Northwest is going to be a lot different than what is going to be down in Arizona or maybe Western, you know, Southwest or Western New Mexico, all right? So it all depends on what you like. So if I'm going to tell people, and this is going to be a truncated version of this, um, 
and, and it's going to be truncated because we can probably spend a lot longer video on this, just a video on itself. But by and large, I tell people all the time, it, you really got to pick apart areas individually. And, it, and it's all, again, it's all up to you. But if you want specific assistance, as in you want another set of eyes or my set of eyes to help you pick apart your area or choose an area, well, we can do that. It, I mean, you see on the website that from a consulting standpoint, if you want to pick up the phone and we want to carve out an hour or two or three or whatever you want to do, and we want to sit down on the computer, we can either do it in person or we can sit on the computer and back and forth through the computer, both of us looking at the same thing and I'm moving the cursor around and you're seeing what I'm seeing and I'm moving to, I mean, actual one-on-one -on -one consulting on your elk hunting area, we can set that time up and we can... We can do that. We can pick your area apart and we can go through all this stuff in detail that I'm going to gloss over right now. Just understand that that's a separate deal. Just send me an email, say, hey, how do we, how do we go about doing that? How do we set that up? And, and we'll dive into that. Um, because I think it very, it, it very much is a very individualistic type of deal because it all depends on your value set. Number one. Number two, it depends on what your assets are, physical ability on yourself and your own legs and your back versus whether you have horses or goats or llamas, can you rent them? Can, are you going to do a, a drop camp? Do you like a drop camp idea? Do you want to go with an outfitter? It all depends on what you want and what you can do yourself. There's a lot of people that love, <clears throat> excuse me, I had to turn, we're going to see, this might end up being a, a quick, ugh, this might end up being a quick podcast because I you notice it's a lot quieter in here. I t it's 103 or something like that outside, and I turn the AC off. I can feel the heat coming in. Even though we've got this thing insulated eight ways from Sunday, it's amazing. When it's warm outside in a small space, doesn't matter because this side of the roof, and it, it doesn't matter. I could go down a rabbit hole on the freaking day. I don't need to talk about that. Anyway, so anyway, so the AC's off. So it might get a little, if, if I start getting a little too sweaty, this is going to be quicker than it is going to be longer. Um, all right. So it's all individualistic where you want to go and what your assets are. So the first thing I say, if you want to find a place to hunt elk, where do you want to hunt? Where do you want to hunt? What, what kind of habitat do you want? What kind, what, what kind of experience would you like? If you're the type of person that says, you know what, I'm, I'm a little bit older or I don't have the physical strength or I don't have, I need, I've got kids or I want to use my camper or I want to use my ATV or whatever. Okay. You need to identify those values that you have and say, okay, based on all of those, this is where you start getting, just sit online and you start going through the forest, the, uh, the forest service. You can pick up a, a map book um, for your, you know, wherever state, you know, like Delorme has the Colorado Atlas, the Wyoming Atlas, the Utah, the, you pick that up if you want, or go online and start looking at, looking at, look at blocks of areas of the national forest, take a look and see what the elevations look like, get on, what national forest is it, or what, what public land is it, find out who administers the management of that piece of public ground, Look at the maps that they have. See what they say as far as the different forest types that are in there. All right. 
They'll tell you what the elevation is. They'll tell you what kind of, you know, you can look at trails. You say, okay, well, there's a trail here and there's a trail there. A lot of them, you can actually pull that up online and you can see the trail, pro, uh, there's a, sorry, you can see the trail profile. And there are a lot of great third party type uh, resources at, you know, like both, you know, like places like REI or Jack's or any place where you get um, recreational stuff like hiking type information. They'll have little books on trails and trailheads. Say, for instance, out just randomly, you want to do hunt... Well, this is going to come up here in a minute. Let's just say you want to hunt over by Aspen or Sanger to Cristo Mountains or wherever, or you wanted to hunt the Bighorns or you wanted, wherever you wanted to hunt. You can pull up the Forest Service maps of those. But a lot of times you can also find trail maps. Just Google it. Find trail maps or a book of trail maps for that particular area. And you can actually you can get that either online or get it in a, in a, have it sent to you. You can go through there and they'll say, okay, here's this trail. Here's the trail head. This is what the trail profile looks like. This is the type of trail that it is. There's so much information you can pick apart on public ground information from the comfort of your own home without having to step foot on it, all right? Stepping foot on it is very important, but there's a lot you can do up, up before then, all right? So number one, what type of experience do you want? High country, Aspens, low country? Okay, pick your area according to that. Do you need to have ATV access or do you want ATV access? All right, there's going to be a restricted a bunch of, I mean, most national forests, okay, wilderness areas are typically on the tops of the mountains. Around that wilderness area, and wilderness area you cannot bring vehicles, no motorized equipment, no wheeled vehicles, all right? So that's foot or horseback only is pretty much what it is. Around those wilderness areas, as you drop down in elevation, typically you're going to have just the bulk national forest. Or if, if you have a national forest that doesn't have a wilderness area in it, it's just national forest. But within that area of that national forest, there's most likely going to be roadless areas and roaded areas. Roadless areas are where it's foot or horseback access only. Maybe it's a mountain bike, all right, on a trail. But it's not ATV accessible or motorcycle accessible or side-by-side -side accessible. You can get on that forest, you can pull up that information and figure out where the motorized trails are and where the motorized area is. You can get their travel management plan for that forest. So if it's Arapahoe National Forest, you can go and look up the Arapahoe National Forest and you can get a hold of it, look on their website and you can pull up their travel management plan. And that will show you where ATVs and motorized uh, uh, recreation is allowed and where it's not. Now it's up to you to say, okay, if I want ATV access, here are the trails I can use. If I don't want ATV access and I want to get away from people, well, here are the places where ATVs are not allowed. Or if you say, I want to use an ATV, but I want to hunt away from people, well, where's this trail go? How can I get there? Where can I park? And where can I hike in from there? All right, so all of this stuff can be found online. Even the state agencies have that. If you go to the state wildlife areas, and that's it, 
you can get a hold of their maps and you can say, okay, where is it wrote? Where can I go? Where can I not go with, with a motorized piece of equipment? Where can I go or where can I not go on foot or bicycle or horseback or all of that? All right, so pick that apart. Where do you want, what kind of experience do you want? Then start picking apart. I guess, let me take a step back. What kind of experience do you want? High country or low country? Do you want Aspens or whatever? And then where do you want to hunt? All right, what, generally what area? Do you want it close to home? Say you live in the Denver metro area and you want to hunt close to home. Okay, well, there's plenty of places that you go. If you live out of state, then it really doesn't matter. But a lot of people choose the most convenient place that they can access and one of the most one of the quickest places that they can access. That's the reason why in Colorado, if you look at it, it is hilarious to me. You, you almost can draw it out. I would love to see a study sometime. A lot of people that access Colorado from Interstate 80 end up hunting that north central part of the state. A lot of the people that take I-70 into Colorado end up hunting largely in the center part of the state. And then a lot of people that live in Texas, in New Mexico, in Arizona end up hunting the southern part of the state. It's amazing how you can see just regional segregations just based on the roadways coming in. All right, so where do you want to hunt? Do you want an absolute, as, as remote as possible to where maybe the only town access, you know, the only, um, the only uh, service, hold on, the only service support that you might have is a, is a tiny little town? Or do you want to have a bigger town around you? Do you want to have multiple towns around you? Do you want to have a hotel? Do you want laundromat? Do you need grocery stores? Do you need all that support structure? Fuel. Do you need all that support structure? Or are you self-contained? So choose where you want to hunt. How far away from home, where do you want to go? You can get a hold of the, it, again, the state agency is going to have the information on what the elk herds look like. All right. Some areas of the state have more elk than others. Some, some areas have different management planning. I will say, this is where a service like Go Hunt is awesome. I'm not going to lie to you. I use it from time to time. Go Hunt is awesome because in one website, yes, it's going to cost you about a hundred and a quarter. Is it a hundred and a quarter, 150? I don't even remember what it is anymore. Sorry, guys. Um, it's going to cost you some money. But if you do it right, it's a it's a 12-month membership. So if you do it right, you can like go in there. So say like Colorado's application period is done. It, it, you got to apply by beginning of April. But Arizona and that type of stuff, that all is like in February or whatever. Well, you get your first year, you, you, you become a member at the end of March. You can use it for Colorado come back the next year, you can use it for all the others. I mean, you can get, if you, if you do it smart, you can get some longevity to your membership. But, and if you, there's all sorts of, of promo codes out there. I know if you listen to Jay Scott uh, podcast, Jay Scott Outdoors and his podcast or, or follow him on his social media, he's he always has a promo code for Go Hunt. All right. So you can get a little bit of money off of it. All right. But GoHunt.com and, and places like that are really good because in one place you can just click on that unit 
What can I learn? Okay, so the population is 3,000 elk and the bull to cow ratio is 25 bulls per 100 cows. Awesome. Okay, what about this area? Okay, that only has 1,000 elk, but the bull to cow ratio is, oh, there's 50 bulls per 100 cows. Okay, well, there's fewer elk, but there's a hell of a lot more bulls per. Then you go this one. All right, well, what about this area? Holy mo, that's what? The herd is what? 15, 20,000 elk? Holy moly. But the herd ratio is 10 bulls per 100 cows. Okay, you can start picking that stuff apart with those type of resources. These, I mean, I'm telling you, folks, there's so much information out online now, it's, it's crazy. What type of experience do you want? Where do you want to hunt? What kind of, where? Go on some site like Go Hunt and then start picking. Just We're going to say, I want to go north central Colorado. Okay, fine. If you want to go north central Colorado, get on Go Hunt or whatever and then pick apart the units in north central Colorado that have the juxtaposition of the resources or the experiences that you want there. All right? And then settle on a spot. At this point, Again, you can get all the topo. I mean, Google Earth. You can, I mean, geez, it's so, there's so much. There's so much that you can access. From Go Hunt, you can jump on, once you've settled on that area, you can go to Google Earth, or you can just go to the Forest Service site and, and start looking at their mapping, but you can go to Google Earth, bring that area up, start laying stuff down, tilting, moving it around, seeing how tall are these mountains, is it nice rolling, what is the elevation, blah, 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 what is the habitat type, that's going to all be in the forest service type or, or side if it's national forest. Their management plan, their recreational plan is all going to be on there. It's going to give you all this information, all right? At this point, once I've started narrowing down, okay, I want to hunt the central part of the state. I want I, I don't know if I can hunt the wilderness area. I'm just a little bit leery of going that far, and I don't know if I can get stuff out. All right, so I want to maybe, I, but I don't want to have a lot of people. I don't want to have a lot of ATVs and everything else. You know, I I don't want to have a lot of people around. All right, so I want to pick, and, and I, you know, I kind of like to stay towards maybe that uh, middle part of the state. All right, so we're talking not necessarily a wilderness area, and we're talking about, roadless area and in the bit in the middle of part of the state that gives me some resources okay then i go to go hunt and i start picking apart these units these over-the-counter units if i'm if i'm choosing an over-the-counter unit i'm going to start going to go hunt picking apart these units and i'm going to learn about what the elk population looks like in here and what the herd rate what what the herd dynamics look like now you can get that information for free from the state agency you just might have to hunt and pack and, and pick stuff apart. Places like GoHunt.com make it so much easier. I'm telling you, just click, 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 boom, it's right there. That's what they do, all right? So once I figure out, huh, this unit seems like it fits everything that I want. All right. And I've looked at Google Earth, and it kind of seems pretty cool, and it seems like all right, well, it seems like there's some timber areas and it seems like there's some openings and it seems like there's some waterways and that, I mean, it seems like there should be elk and, and, the, and it says that there's elk in the area. Here is the thing that I'm going to tell you to do. And again, it's going to be spending money. Hunt data CD. All right, hunt data 
CD. I'm not affiliated with that company, just like Go Hunt. I'm not affiliated with Go Hunt. I'm not affiliated with Hunt Data CD. I know the folks. They're great folks. I use their product from time to time, and I recommend their product because it's a dang handy freaking product. What is it? They take their, so everybody else does all this other stuff. They have some of the same similar information, but what they do, what I really like, is the fact that they will put on there from the state agencies, and they've got New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, um, they've got most of the western states. They will put on there, when you bring up a unit, they have a really awesome interface with Google Earth, and they have a really awesome interface with their app, their mobile app, speaking of which. Woo! Let's just do that. Guaranteed, I didn't have my phone on silent. Guaranteed it was going to happen. You know what was going to happen. Ring. Um, so anyway, they have a really awesome mobile app that interfaces with their product. And it interfaces with Google Earth awesomely. But what it does is it has in there where the traditional summer ranges are, the traditional winter ranges are, where the traditional calving ranges are for elk, for deer, okay? deer fawning areas but anyway but we're talking about it has all that information these are that the information is from the state agency the state biologists the game managers and other people putting input in there it'll show arrows migration corridors okay now we're starting to we're starting to hone down on the the general thesis here on what the elk are doing in this area from there now i know okay I've got myself, I'm just step by step, I'm getting a little bit more focused, a little bit more focused, a little bit more focused. Okay. Once I know where the summer range is, calving areas are, and the winter range is, and those movement corridors, that's when I start picking apart where I want to start my scouting, both online with Google Earth and maybe on X Maps. Again, I mean, you're going to spend my anymore these resources are out there but they're not free all right so you just a little here a little there a little here a little there yes it adds up all right i'm sorry it adds up but it'll help you all right over time a little bit here a little bit there over time it'll help you okay so start focusing on what type of hunter are you gonna do? are you going to do an early archery are you going opening weekend opening week of archery season. Now, this year in Colorado, and I guess I guess it doesn't, I mean, it's funny. This is going to be a new era. So apparently Colorado just approved the next five-year big game season structure, and they've changed. If it, go, if it finally gets approved, we're going to start on September 2nd, I think? they say September 2nd every year and go till September 30th I think that's what Colorado is going to change too it's not going to be the last Saturday in August anymore okay before we fluctuated around Colorado fluctuated around the, on that last Saturday in August sometimes that's August 24th or 25th and sometimes it's like this year it's August 31st it's not going to be it's going to it's going to be fixed um yeah 
So Wyoming and, and other states are, you know, September 1st, September 30th, or whatever it is, you know, or New Mexico, September, boy, I don't know, it's, it's a two-week period. What every, every state has its different season. But when are you going? Are you going early, as early as you can? Utah, some of them start August 15th. The earlier you are going, in my opinion, the closer you should be looking to their traditional summer ranges. I will also add, this is a little tidbit for you to chew on however you want to deal with it. If you look at calving areas on the mountain, and I really now I just realized I should have put this, I should have, yeah, oh well, we can, we can, if you guys want to go through a more in-depth tutorial on this, we can, we can do that at a later date, but, because um, this is for the mountain discussion. Anyway, earlier in the season, elk are generally going to be closer to their summer range, traditional summer ranges, all things being equal. However, when the pressure hits, hunting pressure hits, and sometimes environmental factors hit, and we'll touch on that here in a little bit. You can see elk, especially cows, may make a move down in towards some of their transition areas. Okay, so you got winter range in the winter, spring thaw, we just talked about this in episode three, moving up the mountain, follow the green up, they you go to traditional calving areas, and then they go to the summer areas. All right, those transition areas between the winter and summer, the calving area is gonna be somewhere in between. It's not uncommon for cows to want to go back to or in and around their calving areas when the pressure hits during September because all of the things that they choose and they wanted to have for successful calving, food, water, cover, sanctuary, safety, that's what they want for the calving. What do they want in the fall when there's hunter pressure? and interspecific pressure between other elk and their group. Food, water, safety. A lot of times you can see those animals actually make a move back toward their calving areas. All right, so that's why early in the season, I'm gonna be focusing on where their summer ranges are. If I plan to hunt beginning or maybe the middle of September, maybe I start focusing on the heart of those transition areas and maybe around those calving areas. If I think I'm going to be hunting, well heck, even into the end of September. If, however, I think I'm going to be hunting end of September or I'm going first rifle, middle rifle, whatever, I'm going to start hunting into October then I'm going to start with those transition areas and I'm going to start going a little bit lower. Again, all things being equal. If it's been a wet, warm fall, okay, then maybe the vegetation is doing well and we're going to talk about this aspect on the mountain here in a second. But just as a quick segue, if the weather and moisture in the vegetation has been such to where it probably it might be keeping those elk high, okay, then I'm going to shift and I'm going to adjust. But if all of a sudden the weather comes in and starts pushing stuff down, okay, then I'm going to adjust. But overall, in generalities, the earlier in the season I go, the closer I'm going to probably crowd those summer areas. If I'm in the middle part of the season, I'm probably going to be looking primarily in around some of those transition areas in around those calving areas. 
if I'm going to be hunting later in the season, I'm going to be somewhere between those calving areas and transition areas and their winter range. And if I'm hunting in essentially at the end of October into November, I'm really going to probably be focusing in and around their winter range. Again, adjusting based on weather and feed from there. Hunt Data CD, their product, allows you to see where those things are very, very easily interfaced over interacting with Google Earth. All right? So you can start, and again, they've got a really good mobile app as well. So from your, if you have OnX or if you have Google Earth on your phone or whatever, you can start putting these little waypoints. You can start putting these little things in there and having all these layers start interacting with one another where you say, okay, well, hold on a minute. I went from this 30,000, what they say, that 30,000 foot view all the way down to, okay, now I know where I kind of want to hunt. Now I know it's all national forest and I know where the travel management plan is. Now I know where the summer range is and I know where the transition is or the, the winter range is. Now, because I've got the travel management plan, I know where the access roads are and I know where the trailheads are and I know where the trail system goes. Well, now you can pick apart Google Earth a little bit more if you want and just kind of figure out, okay, what does the terrain look like? Are there benches? Are there, what do the slopes look like? You know, north facing versus south facing. Oh, there's beaver meadows, you know, beaver ponds and stuff, meadows in there, or it looks like it's really steep and, oh, there's a little opening here, there's a little opening there. You can start picking apart all that to set yourself up for the situation when you actually put boots on the ground. Because that's the only way you're going to ground truth this. All right? That's the only way you're going to ground truth it, is to get out there and put boot leather to the ground and start walking it and learning it. Now, that can either be done preseason, during the summer. If you are going to do it preseason, please trust me when I say I am going to highly recommend that you do it as close to spring thaw and snow out as possible. Meaning, and my cat is desperate to try to get it. She wants to come out and hang out. <laughs> no, but, or Swebs, she can't come in. She's outside of the, uh, the AC unit right there just going nuts. So, do it. If you're going to come out and preseason scout, please do it as close to June, early July as you possibly can. All right? Seriously. Number one. As that snow melts, everything's mashed down, but nothing has grown in, nothing has changed on the landscape than since when it got basically trapped in that snow in the fall. Now, avalanches notwithstanding, all right? So if you have a bad avalanche of the year like we did in 2018, early 2019, okay, that avalanche chute that just came down through and just wiped out, okay, sure, it modified the landscape. But by and large, everything else that's been out on the landscape has been trapped under snow and is now preserved for you to look at. Droppings? Sure, maybe you don't see fresh, fresh, fresh droppings right now, but you can see where all the droppings were from last fall and it, before it snowed. That wallow? That wallow is going to be a, uh, an open hole. Probably at this point, it's going to have an open hole of water. And you're not going to have a whole bunch of grass growing in and concealing it. Because there are some wallows that elk will make seasonally that are just in a wet meadow to where 
you give that two or three weeks, you start going into July or the end of July, the grass may be this tall and it's completely choked it out. You didn't even know there was a wallow there. So if you can get into this your area to scout, as soon as the snow has gone or as the snow is leaving, I think a lot of times you can pick apart a lot of information that you will not get end of July into August, okay? I, am, I will emphasize this especially for folks that are going to be scouting in and around the summer range. If you're planning on hunting some of the higher elevation stuff, now granted, some of the higher elevation stuff, you may not be able to get in there until the beginning of July or middle of the July. That's fine. Still, do it as very early as you can because the last thing that you want to do is be one of the 27 different groups of people going in there two weeks before season and putting your scent everywhere. All of a sudden having this influx of human activity in and around the areas where you may actually want to go hunt. You're, you're depositing scent, you're making sound, the elk start knowing that you're there, and the more that people are doing that on the landscape, the more they're like, ah, oh, crap, is that time already? Jeez, oh, Pete, I thought we still had a couple weeks. Did, ah, crap. And they start knowing, okay? Again, we I've talked about it before, call shy bulls. People talk about call shy bulls. I say call shy cows, okay? You've got cows on the landscape that are 20 plus years old. They know what it means when all of a sudden a bunch of people start walking up the mountain. This is part of the reason, I'm, I'm not gonna, I haven't talked about it yet, but that's part of the reason why I don't run game cameras in the summer. Nope. All right. So do your scouting as early as possible. If you're going to scout and put boot leather on the ground, then do your scouting as early as possible. Get in there just as that snow has left. It may be a little muddy, but get in there just as soon as that snow has left, as close as you can. That way the grass hasn't grown up and hidden all those elk trails, haven't hidden all those uh, piles of poop, hasn't hidden all those wallows, okay? So all that stuff is there for you to discover. And you can start putting this, that, and the Same thing with bedding areas. You're going to be able to get into some of these bedding areas and you're going to see the droppings. You're going to see, okay? Get out there, put boot leather to the ground. If you can't get out there before the season, then really you're just going to have to rely on all, everything that you did up until that point and go hunt. Go have fun. Seriously. Understand, I don't care who you are, on, it's, on average, finding an elk hunting spot is like starting a business. Anybody who started a business or has been involved with a business startup knows it usually takes three to five years to get a business up off the ground. It just does. It takes some time to get the engine moving to where it's rolling, that you know what you have to deal with, and you just hit your stride. The same thing with elk hunting spot. Seriously. It's going to take some time to get in there because your initial reaction or your initial assessment might be dead on. And you walk in there and you walk straight into to elk heaven and there's elk all around you. Awesome. Next year you're like, we're going back there and doing that again. And then the next year you show up and there's two wall tents and an outfitter camp in there. What the... Where, what, 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 now where are the elk? I don't know. 
Well, now you spend your hunt and you realize, oh, well, they went up this mountain over on this bench. Okay, well, now we know this is good when no one's here, but if it, they might get pushed to this bench. Third year you come back, maybe it's a little bit different environmental conditions, and now they're over on this side of the mountain. Over time, you're going to start to be able to pick apart the area that you choose and figure out where the elk are. Conversely, you may go into your first year, and I know this sucks because the elk tag ain't cheap. You may go into your first year, you're like, this looks awesome. You walk in there to go hunt, all gang gung-ho, you get up in there and you're like, no, I'm not seeing what? There's no droppings, there's no wallows, there's no rubs, there's no trails, there's just, you. Get, what the heck, what? Okay, that's why I always talk about if you're going to do your scouting, and you're, especially your e-scouting, there ain't a darn reason in the world why you can't figure out a primary area, start working on a primary area, but also start on some plan B and plan C areas. This is the area that I want to focus on. This is awesome. This looks really good. But this area over here doesn't look too bad either. So, okay, well, let me, let me kind of keep that in mind for a plan B, but I'm going to go here. This is where we're planning on rolling into camp for our first day of hunt. This is where we're going to go. And you get in there and you spend a couple days and you're like, wait a minute, this is not what I thought and I'm not seeing anything. Maybe your plan B area is where you need to head to. Now, that brings me up to another point that I just want to make real quick. I see a lot of people spend, and, and, I can, and you can see this on uh, some YouTube videos lately, some popular YouTube series, where people just boom, 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 and they're just cranking across the landscape. Okay, you can do that if you have the physical fitness to do that. That's fine, but understand, you may come into an area that has plenty of elk, they're just not vocal. You, again, I, folks, I'm telling you, this is why I, I preach it. I know, I, I, people have told me this. Okay, I'll own it. I preach it. Okay, I believe it this much. I want to go into the Valley of Ten Bulls, the proverbial Valley of Ten Bulls. And I want to have the, the, the game plan and the, the tool set and the ability to work all 10 bulls that are in there. However, any one of those bulls wants to be worked. I don't care. If, this, if bull A needs just some subtle finesse and he's going to come in dead quiet, I give two sh I'm Sorry, I don't care. I'll stick him just as happily on opening morning with him coming in silent, standing 14 yards in front of me, as I will if I went across that mountain, found that bull that was bugling, and at you know day seven of my hunt, called him in, he screamed in my face, and I shot him. It all depends on what your value set is, obviously. But just understand, if you move, if you pioneer into a new area, if you're seeing tracks, if you're seeing droppings, if the wallows look like they're being hit, understanding, you need to look for bear tracks, okay? Make sure if you see a muddy wallow, you're like, oh, it's hot. Now, make sure it wasn't a bear. But if, the, if that wallow is torn up and there's mud flung everywhere and it still looks like it's, it's pretty fresh, okay, are elk around? If elk around, slow the hell down, all right? Take a minute, pause, slow down, and start picking it apart. Again, it's going to take you some time to develop your area and understand how your area works. Now, if you've just taken a week and that's all you have, 
then okay, maybe split your week up. Maybe you go, say, four days and three days. Say, four days, we're going into our primary area. And if we find elk, great. Then we'll, then we'll camp, then we'll stay, and we'll work them. But if we give it three or four days, and, we have, and we've picked this freaking place apart, and we haven't found a track, get the freaking hell out of there. Go to your plan B area. Or at the very least, go up and over the mountain. Hit the next trailhead, go up there. All right? Again, we're going to talk about the mountain and moisture and all that type of stuff here in a minute. But at least give it a little bit. Don't go bombastic up through your area in one or two days and be like, we're out. If you're finding, slow down so you can detect the sign. And if you see sign, slow down and work it. Okay? You may be running past elk trying to find elk. You don't need to do that. All right? Or, I mean, you can if you want to. But again, I'm... There's an elk there, and all I need to do is slow down and figure out, wait a minute, they're here. They're just not saying anything, but that wall is there, and man, I know I smell them every time, every now and then. Maybe I take a day or two and just see what's going on in the area before I move on, all right? But it's going to take time to develop your area and really learn it. That's why I don't tell people just to bail on an area too soon. And too soon being within your hunt, but also year to year. So if you've done your research, the, all the numbers are there. Everything seems to jive, but you went into this area and you didn't see squat. Evaluate the year and the weather and everything else. Maybe next year you say, okay, It should be good. There's just no reason why this shouldn't be good. How about we go back, but instead of planning a week where we just were, why don't we plan on our primary hunt being the next drainage over? Start scouting that, e-scouting, remote scouting that. And then when you show up to camp, you run into your area that you were last year because you already know it. You already have the idea of the landscape, where the trails go, where the benches are, how to access, blah, blah, blah. Run in there now, maybe you take a day or two and go, are they here? No? Is it still, still sucky? We're out. Go over the other one and now spend the rest of your hunt picking apart a new drainage, a new mountain, a new ridge system. All right? But you very well may find it you go in there that second year and you're like, oh, 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 wait, no, 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 wait a minute, we got them, we got them, they're right there. They're up here. Okay. Not saying don't explore that other side. I'm always telling people, explore one more ridge, one more valley, one more basin, one more trail. What? Ex always expand where you're looking when you're putting boot leather on the ground from year to year. So don't just necessarily give up on the... Again, let's just say that last year, last year was your first year in a spot. You went in there and it wasn't what you hoped it was going to be. If you did your research, like I just talked about earlier, and it had everything there that should make, the, the, the agency said there's a bunch of elk in there. This is what the bull cow ratio looks like. This is the type of terrain and everything that I wanted to be in, and this is where this is where the summer range is versus the transition range. Blah blah. 
All I know all those things. It looked good. It should be good. If last year wasn't what you'd hoped, keep in mind, last year was a drought. This year may not be a drought. And I say may not. We're going to get in, we're going to get into details, but maybe it's it may not be a drought and quite honestly, it may be a, a a mud bog with as much water that it that might be in there. That may completely change the entire dynamic of your old spot, the spot that you were in last year, the spot that you were pissed off about because or disappointed in because it didn't have anything. Don't be too quick to abandon something if you haven't given it time to see how those animals respond to different environmental factors across the years. Okay? Does that make sense? Hope that makes sense. All right? So briefly that's where that that that's the that's the that's the broad strokes and and you know people ask how do I find elk? That's how. That's literally how. Where do what kind of experience do I want? High country, mid country, low country. What type of access do I need? What type of access do I want? Motorized, unmotorized. In the past, I had four horses. We don't have those horses. We still have some horses, but they're getting older. They've got some injuries. We can't use them for packing out elk really anymore. So my high country days of way the frickin' hell back in there, that's out. It's out because I don't have the animals. I don't have the I don't have the ability to do what I used to do. Way the hell and gone in the back, deep in the back country, like I used to. I just don't have the physical ability to pull an elk six miles out on my back. Okay? So, what kind of access do I need? What kind of abilities do I have? And here's, this is going to be my opinion. Unless you're a uber fitness junkie, I really think, in my opinion... Most folks, most folks, three miles and under from where your vehicle is. Getting an elk out, carrying an elk for three miles is no joke. Okay? Yeah, I know you hear people talk all the time, we're going eight miles back in, ten miles back in. Uh-huh. Yep. And I can tell you exactly how many times I've watched those same individuals walking by my camp saying, oh, we're going to such and such drainage or we're going to such and such basin. Eight miles in, 10 miles in. And then five days later, I see them coming out with an elk rack on their back and the back straps. And then, or maybe one of them's got the back straps and the elk rack and the other one's got a front quarter and how many times I've heard oh, oh a bear got it you're full of shit excuse my language you're full of shit you got back there with your full camp and went holy hell this is a long way and now you're there and you had a great hunt and you got into elk you're not gonna not hunt elk so you go and you kill an elk and then you get the elk on the ground and you go oh crap this is big this is heavy. And then you went and hiked that elk wherever it landed. You went to hike that thing back to your camp. And you went, oh, blankety blank. Word, what I always say, words and phrases. 
words and phrases start coming out of your mouth going, what the hell are we going to do now? Okay? If you are heavily focused on fitness, yes, you can go a lot farther. But if you are the average Joe Schmedley like I am now, three miles is going to punish you. Three miles is going to hurt you. A mile, that's doable. Still not going to be fun, but it's going to be doable. Two miles, it's going to start making you think. Three miles, words and phrases. Words and phrases. All right? Now, remind me, if you guys are interested, and I can, we can have a podcast on backcountry meat care, what I do to make sure the meat stays good while I'm shuttling it out, if I'm just, most of the time I'm by myself. Um, but just understand that most average people, my recommendation, no more than three miles. All right. Just to get the meat out. And it's probably going to take you a couple days. Okay. Um, so there you go. Go through all that. Just, just go right down that checklist of, of what, it, you know, access the whole nine yards. And once you hone in. And get all the information that you can get from all those different places. It's going to take some boot leather on the ground. Whether that is preseason scouting. Or whether that's just, here we go, all in, buy the tag, show up at the trailhead with a bow or muzzleloader or rifle in hand. And here we go. Okay? It's going to take some time for you to learn that area and get it figured out. So don't give up on it extremely quickly all right all right so that's that i'll end it there on that topic oh let me hold on all right bring up my notes make sure that's not my notes all right all right so the second part of this was a question that came in, and, and this is, I'm synthesizing several questions, all right, because this always comes up. But the recent question came in uh, regarding, you know, the Alpine, backcountry areas, some of the higher country areas, and the fact that, you know, the map says, you know, the information says that the summer range should be up on top of the Alpine, up on this top of this mountain. But then they went over there and they didn't see any elk up there. Well, last year it was a drought. And so it was dry. And the correct deduction of that was, well, it was dry and they and the really didn't have good forage up high. So the elk didn't get up there. They, they didn't make it up there. The, the elk just didn't find the forage they needed. So they, they stayed in a different area based on the forage availability and quality uh, that they were able to find in a different area. And that's absolutely the case. So other questions pertaining to that end up coming in about, well, why is this mountain different than that mountain? Well, I saw this in this area and I saw this in an area. Okay, the different, different weather patterns are going to have a different effect on it. I've talked about this in, pa in videos in the past where that mountain gets rain, but this one doesn't. Monsoon rains in the late summer are by, dis by nature 
mostly thunderstorms. So yes, you can have broad expanses of clouds going over, but you've got these cells of thunderstorms dropping moisture. It can drop three inches of rain over there on that side of the mountain, go across the valley and over here, and it didn't get a drop. And maybe that side of the mountain has had six of those storms. This side of the mountain hasn't had a drop. You want to know what, and during the middle of the day, you're in the 80, you know, up in the mountains, maybe you're in the 80s, or maybe you're even pushing 90s. This side of the mountain ends up drying out like a popcorn fart. That side of the mountain is nice, lush, and wet. If there's connectivity between the two, well, okay, where are the elk going to go? They're going to go to the better forage. So that absolutely happens based on the, the rain and moisture cycle. But the other thing, too, people that need or people need to um, understand, too, is you can have different effects based on the type of mountain that you're on as well. All right, so there are a couple places, and, and let's just let's just use no before we dive before I dive into that. Okay, so if we look at a mountain, I think it helps to imagine a mountain like a triangular sponge. Okay, so let's just draw. Oops. Triangular sponge. Alright, this is a sponge. That's a sponge. Alright? If you think about if you had a sponge sitting on your counter and you put water well, doesn't even matter. Let's just say you took the little sprayer on your little sink thing and you and you saturated this sponge. And then you turn the water off. This sponge sitting in your sink, what is going to happen to the water in that sponge? It's going to settle. Correct. That water, even as the moisture, as you are spraying this sponge and keeping everything saturated, there's going to be water from the top of the point of that sponge. Okay, and I guess, quite honestly, no. It wouldn't be a triangle. Let's say it's a pyramid, okay? Spongy pyramid, okay? As that thing's sitting in your sink, as you're spraying it, there's going to be water saturated and uniform across the entire sponge. But as soon as you let off that sprayer, that water is just going to, gravity is just going to start pulling the excess water off or out of that sponge. It's just going to start to settle. Now, at the bottom of this sponge, okay, down here, we, this is the thing, I hope you guys like this like I do, because this is why I get in the weeds on things, because there's so many little things. Remember back to your uh, science days, capillary action? <laughs> yeah, pull that one out. All right, so 
at the bottom of your sponge, the way the sponge is, it might actually, not all of the water is going to just vacate the bottom of the sponge initially. The vast majority of the water, the weight of the water column is going to start to pull down. It's going to pull all that water out. And for a little while, there's going to be a little layer at the bottom of that sponge that stays really, really wet. Now, over time, it's going to slowly leak out. But it's going to empty from the top first. And as it gets pulled down, it's going to go fast off the top. And then it's going to slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. And down here, you're going to have a wet layer a lot longer. Quite honestly, if you let this go for a while... The bottom of your sponge is probably still going to be real wet even though the tip of the top of that sponge actually starts to physically dry out as in no moisture because now all of the moisture has been pulled that can be pulled by gravity but the nature of the sponge the material in the sponge it's going to hold a little water it's going to hold a little moisture that moisture at some point is going to evaporate it's just going to start to evaporate into the atmosphere. And this point, tip top of that pyramid, will dry out. Meanwhile, the bottom of that sponge is probably going to hold moisture. Over time, if we have a pyramid, okay, the edges of that pyramid are going to start to dry out before the middle portions of that pyramid are going to... The middle portion of the side... Okay, so if you're just listening to this, I'm drawn on a whiteboard and you're out of luck. But I'm going to try to explain. So on the edges, so a pyramid, you've got the point, the tippy-tippy point, and then you got the four crisp, clean edges coming down to the base, right? Those edges are going to dry out before the middle side of those each of those triangles on the side the middle of that pyramid and the surface of that pyramid is going to dry out before the center of the pyramid dries out and it's not until the center starts to dry out and the gravity pulls that out does the the base of that pyramid finally end up drying out all right well, what is a mountain on the landscape, on the surface of the earth? It's essentially this pyramid. Now, it may not look like a pyramid, but the same thing holds true. Gravity still works. Water still has weight. Water gets pulled down the mountain, right? If you have, okay, here we are, winter of 2018, 2019, we had a ton of snow across the entire pyramid, right? We had a prolonged spring in many areas, meaning there were patches of snow deep snow 
and there were some snow showers that came in late and poured more, you know, put more moisture on the mountain over time. There was snow and patches of snow all over different areas of this pyramid. To include a lot of snow at the top, the very tippy top of the pyramid. Now, for this analogy, we're gonna we're, let's just use a generic mountain that say that say tops out at thirteen. So say okay. So say this top of the pyramid is thirteen thousand feet. All right, alpine. Typical what people classify as that backcountry, high country, alpine, above timberline, blah, 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 whatever you want to get. 13,000 feet, you're going to be out alpine tundra, some willows, maybe some Krumholtz pines, okay? 13,000 feet for Colorado, that's a safe bet, all right? Maybe in Wyoming, you're not that high, but the same thing applies. You may only be 10,000, 11,000, maybe pushing 12,000 feet, but the same thing applies. All right? So maybe that's 13,000 feet at the tippy tippy top. And maybe we say that down here is, I don't know, let's say 8,000 feet. All right? Arbitrarily, 8,000 feet. So this winter, oops, I need that. We had snow from top to bottom and it lingered. Now, the bottom because it was warmer at the bottom, sooner than it was warmer at the top, the moisture that was being added to the bottom started to disappear a little sooner than the stuff at the top. Snow that melted down in air 8,000 feet was gone before the snow was melted at 13,000 feet. Make sense? Okay. But if you look at this, if this pyramid, just like we were talking about what happens in our sink, oftentimes can happen on the mountain. Whereas, depending on the arrangement of that terrain, and we'll get that here in a second, as this top of the pyramid keeps having moisture put into it, that moisture is going to get pulled down the mountain. Yes, everybody thinks about the moisture that is in the runoff in the creeks. Yes, the creeks are going to, in the little streams, yes, there's going to be runoff. But the same thing happens in the soil. That moisture is going to start coming down the mountain underground in that soil in the substrate. Let's just put substrate of the mountain, all right? So as long as we're adding moisture to the top of this, this pyramid, you can end up having moisture <coughs> getting pulled down that pyramid and having that overall quote-unquote sponge stay pretty wet. Here's the problem. What happens when the snow melts at the tip top of that mountain? Well, you just turn the sprayer off. Now, there's no more moisture going in at the top. The exact same thing's going to happen. 
once the snow melts, at this point, the top of that mountain is going to be relying on how that sponge, if you will, is made up. How, well, how absorbent is the tip top of that sponge? Meaning, does the tip top of that mountain have a lot of good soil, fine particulate soil, vegetative matter, root matter, old decadent, you know, again, here we go. Let's just let's just dive into it. If you had ever had a range management class or a soil sciences class, you remember your A horizon, your good top soil layer? Okay, does the tippy top of your mountain have a lot of fine soil substrate? Or, which can hold moisture for a longer time? Or, is the tip top of your mountain rock? crushed granite, sand, to where the water just beep, goes. It's gone. Just, it's out. All right? The, the makeup of that mountain, the makeup of your pyramid right here, your sponge, is going to dictate how long, once you stop that sprayer, once you turn the sprayer off, once the, once the moisture's gone, how long is that going to hold moisture? Not all mountains are created equal. Show you here in a second. If you turn that water off, snow melt's gone. And then a month later, all of a sudden, oh, there's a little rainstorm. Oh, there's another little rainstorm. Oh, there's a thunderstorm. Oh, there's another little, and here comes the monsoons. Essentially what you're doing with your sponge in your sink is you're standing there and watching that water drain out of that sponge, and then every now and then you just give it a little, little squirt. Okay? Spray a little on the tip top of that sponge. Well, a lot of times, if it comes frequently in these little storm, these little little spurts, it can just keep that whole thing wet, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And the tip top of that sponge stays nice and damp. May not be wet, but it's damp. Versus, if all of a sudden you lose your snowpack and not another rainstorm comes over that, your sponge is going to dry out. And it's going to dry out pretty quick. If you follow me on Instagram and you follow what I'm doing on my whitetail stuff and my, my food plot stuff that I've been talking about, you know I've talked repeatedly about areas of weeds and why you want to do your weed management on your food plots because vegetation will take a plot and grow itself dry. The more vegetation you have on a site, that vegetation is growing. All right, let's again, here we go. Let's go to botany. Let's go back to our biology class. Evapotranspiration. Okay, the process is inside a plant. Osmosis and other factors are pulling water into the roots. The differential gradient, really. You're, put, you're pulling water into those roots. Those roots, the water is going up the stem of that plant, going out to the leaves. The stomata open up. That plant is going to transpire. 
that water vapor is going to go out of those leaves, it, the plant is going to use the water, and it's going to transpire water out of those stomata, and it's going to basically, like, we breathe out our, our breath, humidity. Well, that's how plants exasperate moisture as well. So they're going to be growing, and they're going to be transpiring and sending water out of the soil into the atmosphere. The more vegetation you have on the tip top of that mountain, the faster that stuff is going to grow itself dry. Couple that with the fact that at 13,000 feet, most of the time you're not having calm weather. Most of the time there's going to be a wind, there's going to be breezes, there's going to be movement of air. The more movement of air you have, the more you just wick away that moisture, the faster it's going to grow itself dry especially in those nice summer days. Yes, it's gorgeous weather up there. It may be only 70s during the high, maybe even high 60s during the high. But again, we're talking about alpine plants that are small of stature anyway, and there's a lot of them. And depending on what your substrate looks like, if it's just grand, you know, just crushed granite and, and gravel, there's not a lot of root mass in there to hold it. It can grow itself dry that fast. And you can absolutely see, and people have already started telling me that they are seeing this in some of their areas this year, 2000, 2019, coming off of one of the record snow years. Their particular mountain, their particular mountain aspect, maybe it's a south-facing, maybe it's south, southwest-facing or whatever, the particular aspect of that mountain, the snow melted off, and they haven't gotten a stick of rain. And it's been nice, sunny. The vegetation has been growing great. But the vegetation grew great. And now it's growing itself dry. And now all of a sudden, the alpine doesn't look as lush as what it looked like before. Yeah. The high, parts of, high portions of the mountains really do need frequent moisture deposition. Because of the temperature at the top of the mountains, most of the time, the top of the mountains, the vegetation that is at the top of the mountains is considered to be a cool season vegetation. Meaning it grows when the temperatures are nice enough for it to actually grow. It can't be, it's gotta be above freezing. <clears throat> most of the time people talk about 60 degrees well, in this case, 40 to 60 degrees. It needs to be warm enough for the plant to actually grow. But it likes that cooler weather. But most importantly, it needs moisture. It needs moisture if it's going to continue to maintain leafy material. High quality leafy material. If not actively, continually growing leafy material. Because if, it, if you watch your plants in your yard, weeds in your yard, grasses. Spring, they're going to grow like crazy. They're going to throw up that little seed head. They're going to flower. They're going to go to seed. Most plants at that point either die, if it's an annual, they just die, or they'll just kind of go dormant. They just kind of boom. They're just going to lay there. And then all of a sudden about fall, if all of a sudden the moisture and the temperature is right, they go, oh, I'll throw a couple more leaves out here. All right? That's at the top of your mountain. Most of those need moisture to stay actively growing. 
once they go to seed, which is the first thing they're going to try to do, once they go to seed, if that moisture starts to dry up, that plant will just shut down and go dormant. Period. Which means if it's not putting any more resources into its leafy material, it may be putting resources, trying to put resources into its roots. But if it's not putting resources into its leafy material, that leafy material starts to dry out. A lot of the nutrients start going away. It becomes a lot more rougher, hard, a lot more lignin in it, a lot diff, more difficult to digest. Okay, what did we just talk about in the previous episodes? Elk are going to choose the better forage on the landscape based on, yeah, taste, but how easy is it, is it to digest and how much nutrients are they getting out of it? A lot of times that ends up being equating, you know, equating to taste, but not always. All right. So if you've got elk up at the top of thir you, you're, you just, like we just talked about, you just looked at your uh, mapping information and you chose an area, uh, you're going to do a backcountry hunt and you're going to go and you're going to hunt at between 11,000 and 13,000 feet. You're going to be up above timberline, glass in those bulls out in those alpine meadows, out in those alpine basins, chasing those elk in and out of the timber and in and out of those willow patches and those little, you know, those little, just little bowls with the little mountain streams and the lakes. And the, I mean, it's awesome. It's just awesome. High country elk hunting is, is just cool, man. No pun intended. It's just, it, there's something viscerally enjoyable on being able to sit on the side of a mountain, look down in this beautiful basin, seeing 50 to 100 or whatever. How many ever elk are in that particular area? Seeing those bulls, seeing those cows, watching them interact, figuring out where they're going to feed, where they're going in and out of bed, and then just dropping down in and making a game plan for it and chasing them out in those big willow flats. It's, it's fun. It's fun but they are going to stay there as long as that vegetation stays of high quality. Because if it doesn't, again, remember our sponge. Always remember, think about your landscape, your mountain as a sponge. The top is going to dry. If, if you turn off your sprayer, the tip of your sponge is going to dry out first. But what did we just say? Two things. I hope you picked up on it because I think some of you did. Those edges. The edges of your pyramid. They're ridgelines. Right? That's just nothing but a ridgeline. There's a ridgeline coming off the mountain there. There's a ridgeline coming off there. There's one here. And then there's the one in the back. A pyramid has four, essentially, ridges coming off the back. Or coming off the off the off the peak, right? The ridges are going to dry out before the middle portion does, and that's all going to dry out before the bottom portion does. Those elk are going to know that. They're going to know that, and they're going to follow that moisture down the mountain. But that may not mean that they're just going to go down those ridges. They may not just go down that. They may jump into some more of these interior portions of the mountain. The, input, the interior portions of your proverbial pyramid. Right? The ridge lines absolutely can also dry out. So when you're looking at your area, 
whether it's preseason scouting or otherwise, if you get there and all of a sudden you realize, man, why does the Alpine look like this yellowish green? Okay, keep that in mind. If you if if the Alpine and that, that all that tundra stuff is just green, and I mean green, green. It might be light green over here and deep green over there, and then this medium green there and dotted with wildflowers, but it's green. I mean, it's just green. You start throwing yellow to it. Okay? Grasses and forbs start to yellow as they start to kind of senesce and they go dormant. So if all of a sudden you went up there and, you know, say July 4th weekend, you and your family went and took a hike and you went up there and you were looking at it and you're like, oh my gosh, this looks incredible. And then you show up end of September, beginning of, uh, or excuse me, end of August, beginning of September and you go, what the, and it's all yellow and yellow green. That forge just went to crap. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to find elk up there. If you've got a high willow component, willows can be a great forage for elk as well. And if you've got little tributaries, little creeks, and little, you know, maybe beaver ponds and that type of stuff that have, that have held. All right, well, let me just do this. Okay, let me. So, I think you guys have the, the uh, pyramid idea in your mind. Okay, you've got that visual fair enough. Okay, let me just, let me draw you, um, let me let me start drawing and segueing into the, the, the actual pictures of mountains, okay? Because there's a couple different ways, hold on. All right, there's a couple different ways that mountains can um, arrange themselves. Let's just take this one for a minute. I'm going to draw what you'd, You'll have some of those mountain ranges where you've got the valley, and then, oops, and then that mountain just just starts to climb. Okay, it just starts going up, 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 peaks out. Okay, and then maybe just comes off that other side. Maybe over here you got a little bench, and then it just it just drops off. All right, a very steep vertical mountain. There are a lot of people that contact me to start having trouble hunting mountain ranges like this because they went out and they scouted maybe over here on the other side. Maybe there's another mountain range over here. Maybe there's a road over here. Maybe there's a trailhead. Maybe there's maybe there's a way to get over to where you can you can just glass across on this side of the mountain or maybe. This is where you come in and you hike up and once you get up to about tree line and we'll just arbitrarily we'll say the tree line is here okay the top one-third of that mountain well, it's not one-third but you get the idea the idea was supposed to be one-third so the top one-third of the mountain is tree line so you can get up and you can glass up above that tree line and you can see all sorts of elk up there but then all of a sudden the elk just vanish and a lot of times, I'll tell you, that the elk will vanish one of two reasons. Either A, the pre-rut move. I talk about that all the time, To The pre-rut move. Once those animals, once those bulls go hard-horned, make their way over to the cow-calf groups, the cow-calf groups start to bust up, and the cow-calf groups want to find their own little sequestered place. What did I just say a little minute ago? Sometimes they will move to their, towards their calving areas for the rut. Well, they can absolutely do that. They may do that just simply because they need space 
from other elk. And so if you had, say, a very dominant bull and a group of dominant cows at the top of the mountain that say, we are staying here and freaking piss on anybody else and pound sand to anybody else, we are taking over this little basin. All right, on the right side of the mountain, I made a little bench up there. You've seen it. You'll see where the mountain peak comes off and then maybe it just kind of bowls out for a little bit. Maybe there's a little lake at the bottom of it. Maybe it's just a little meadow, you know, alpine meadow with a little creek going down through the bottom of it. And then all of a sudden it spills off and it drops off in elevation again. This oftentimes is where you're going to find those elk hanging out in those that little flat spot. Maybe they're bedding just in the timber below that, but they come up and spend their time in that little hanging bench there, or that little tiny bowl, that little lake basin, that little small pocket tucked in the side of the mountain there, all right? Well, if you've got a dominant bull and a dominant group of cows that claim that as their own, but there's three other bulls in the area and there's 30 other cows around there, they're not all going to occupy the same spot. Even if there's good moisture on the mountain, they're not going to all occupy the same spot. Behaviorally, from a dominance interaction, they're going to give themselves some elbow room. So the other ones are, the dominant ones are going to choose the best area. The other ones have got to just figure out where they're going to go and just pound sand and beat feet and get the hell out of there. Otherwise, you just keep getting run around, getting beat up, and getting in fights all the time. Well, they're not going to do that. Those other animals are going to move off that mountain and they're going to go somewhere. So that's one reason why you may see elk move off the top of a mountain. But the other reason is, what we're seeing in some places and what you can see in years like this where you are in well, I don't even say it like this in years where all of a sudden there's no summer moisture up there the alpine vegetation may start to go dry and depending on what your terrain looks like it very well could go dry quicker than another mountain across the ridge that maybe I'm going to superimpose these, so it's going to be, yeah, no, that's with different colors, Chris. Here we are. So the blue one is your very steep mountains, similar to what you see, again, I'm going to speak Colorado here, maybe like what you see in the Sangre de Cristo mountains, or even maybe what you'd see in mountains like, like Aspen. You, you know, around Aspen, you have these valleys, and then it just, that mountain just, it just goes right up. I mean, it's just, just vertical just doesn't stop until you're almost at 14,000 feet, all right? So these are very big, steep, vertical mountains. However, the red, and I'm going to use this same tree line, the red might be... a mountain that looks like that. Very low, not low, wrong word, not low. Wide, lazy you still may be up at 13,000 feet. You might, or excuse me. Th okay, this was tree line. So maybe this is 12,000 feet. This is 14,000 feet or whatever. This may be 12,000, 11,500, 12,000, 12,500, 13. It could even be 13,000 feet. You can go over to the uh, Buffalo Peaks Wilderness Area. You can look at that ridge line that runs from, um, well, basically from in the central part of Colorado Let's just say Leadville South. You look at that ridge line there. That's all above timberline. 
but it is a long, lazy ridge that in many areas will just roll off to the side. It's an old... Here's another one for you. Here's some terminology. You, if you hear people talk about a new river versus an old river, a lot of times, if you remember back to your geology days, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I am going to dredge up horrible memories for some of you. Some of you may be going, I don't want to remember back to my geology class. Aha, too late, it's gonna happen. So I'm gonna dredge it. So a new river or a young river versus an old river has nothing to do necessarily with the actual physical time age of that river. It's basically a description of the characteristics. So an old river has those big bends, those big lazy loops, might have some of those oxbow bends in it, oxbow lakes, and but oftentimes going through those very flat areas versus a young river, which is more straight, cascading straight down the side of the mountain, cutting in, diving in, okay? Same thing with the mountain. Younger mountains, steeper, sharper. Older mountains, they've just settled. Erosion has pulled them down. Older mountains, it's again, they may be the same age. It just may be a different geological structure and different erosion, blah, blah, blah. But just the characteristic of an old style mountain. Okay, you can have those two different types of mountain ranges. Some very vertical, steep. Oftentimes, the reason why they're still vertical and steep is because they have a significant amount of hard rock component to them, right? They have a significant portion of hard rock component to them. How much moisture does hard rock soak up? Exactly. None. All right. So if you're at the top of the mountain up here, the tippy top of your steep mountain, and all of a sudden you turn the sprayer off, she is going the water is going to cascade off the tip top of that thing right now. It's not going to linger. Okay? Any vegetation that has a foothold in there only is going to have a very shallow root system and it's only going to have a limited amount of time of that it actually has water available to it to make do with what it could do. So you're going to see a very fast green up, it's going to go to seed and then it's just going to go dormant. If you turn the spray, you turn the water off on these very steep mountains, just understand, oftentimes, if you're in those very steep, tall mountain ranges, the tip top of that mountain range is going to dry out quicker, and I mean precipitously quicker than maybe the adjacent mountain range that might be like this red line, which is that old, lazy mountain. Oftentimes, mountains like this have eroded over time or have a, a, a geologic structure that is softer material. That's why they've eroded and kind of settled downward, so to speak. Oftentimes, you're going to see a different soil profile and you can find in these more lazy mountain ranges a deeper soil profile, even at the top of the mountain, to where your root structure is bigger, you have more, and here if we want to if we want to consider the, the topsoil layer a sponge, okay, you know that the heart of the mountain is made of rock, and around over the heart of that mountain is going to be this kind of this sponge layer, this this soil layer. 
different areas of that surface of the mountain are going to have different depths and different amount of water that it can hold. Out rocky outcrops are going to hold zero. Those little flat depressed basins that have all the willows and all the grass and all the all that runoff just kind of runs into pools and then moves out, that's going to have some really good soil structure in it that's going to hold water longer. So even though you turn even both these mountains, both mountains, the water turned off in the summer at the same time. They melted off at the same time and the summer rains just never showed up. Your flat, lazy mountains sometimes can actually stay greener and more productive longer simply because they have a better soil profile and they can hold moisture a little bit better. If, so number one, that's why when you're at your sporting goods, you know, the archery shop or at Walmart or wherever you are, your gym or whatever, and you're talking to your buddies or you hear other people talking and one person saying, oh my gosh, the, the alpine looks horrible or the high country looks horrible. It's all burned up. The elk have all moved off. And you just got back from your hiking trip and you were just getting chewed on by mosquitoes and everything was lush and green and you're out there with your significant other picking daisies and la la la. It was just beautiful. No, the other person isn't smoking crack necessarily, I guess. He, they, he, she may be on a completely different mountain range, a completely different geological structure that is completely different. Okay? And if those two mountains are sitting side by side, let's say the red line is just the other side of the valley from the blue, where are the elk going to go? Yes, now on the Blue Mountain, the Steep Mountain, like the Sangre de Cristos or Aspen or what, yes, sometimes those elk can drop down on these steep slopes. They can drop down these slopes if there's aspens in there and there's meadows and, and that type of stuff. If there's good moisture down low, absolutely they'll just drop down low and you may find them a lot lower on the mountain than you would at the tip top simply because, excuse me, the vegetation turned to crap in the summer. However, you know darn well if you hunt mountains like this, you know darn well that sometimes you just there's just nothing down here either. And you can't find where that means those elk are moving laterally up and down those mountain ranges, can move laterally up and down those mountain ranges, going from basin to basin to basin to basin to basin to basin to, basin to find the best vegetation. And sometimes, if, say for instance, this right side of the mountain is a southwest facing slope and this side, the, the left side of the mountain is a northeast facing slope. It is not uncommon to watch those elk right up to, I've watched elk at 13 and change, I mean literally just below 14,000 feet in some cases. Mount Massive is one great example. You can see elk from time to time mid 13,000 feet. They just, they'll just pioneer. There might be an old sheep trail. There's an old miner's trail. There might be an old elk trail. Doesn't matter. There's an old elk. There's a trail that goes up and over that peak and drop down the other side. And literally, they very well may find this side of the peak on the northeast side of that exact same steep peak might have a little bit better vegetation to where they're just up and over. Versus they may just completely leave and go up over that mountain, drop down in the middle part of that other side. They might be on completely the other side of the mountain just be because of the what the, the vegetation did on those steep, steep mountains. On these big, lazy mountains, 
that's where you get to see those elk just kind of drift around. And, and if this this little hump, this starts to, to kind of dry out a little bit, all they may need to do is, look at this. The way I drew it, you've got this little depression here. Maybe the way the terrain is, it just kind of comes down and it has a little depression. And then it just, then it finally slowly runs. This little depressed area, this little swale, this little saddle, this little, not even a saddle really, this just little flat spot on the, on the side of the mountain may in fact end up holding, it may have a nice meadow out there that used to be a beaver pond that has a great soil structure to it that has great soil moisture, has great vegetation growing on it. They may literally may, may make a move of a half mile, drop down a little bit, utilize that, and they may just wander back and forth across this, almost like nothing re even really happened because if you look at this mountain, the water falling off of this mountain is going to be much slower than it is going to be off of that steeper one. Again, oftentimes these low, lazy, big hump mountains have a little bit better, can have a little bit better soil profile, organic matter in that soil profile, fine grained sand in that profile to where it can hold water a little longer. All right. So keep those things in mind when you're looking at your mountain and you're looking at places to scout. All right. If you say you, I want a, a backcountry experience and I want these high alpine basins like this on the blue line here, uh, these, these high alpine basins. Okay. They're awesome. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. They are awesome. But understand they are harsh environments and more ways than one harsh environments in the fact that what we just talked about here, if it doesn't get rain, it can dry up and your elk can move. Flip that around. They're harsh environments for you. So if you don't get rain up there and you've already packed in, you, this is, you're driving from Wisconsin and you hit the trailhead, which is at the bottom of the mountain and you weren't paying attention to what was going on as far as a moisture and a rain cycle in your area on your mountain. And there's weather apps that you can do that with. If you weren't paying attention to how much rain it was getting and you drove all the way from home, you get to the trailhead, which is the bottom of the mountain, you load up your 50, 60 pound pack or whatever you're carrying, you hike all that flipping way and you get up to your little knob up here on the, and, and it hadn't rained. I hope you got water. I hope there's water there. There's been an, I mean, if you listen to the Kafaro cast, Aaron's talked about the fact where he's gotten up, where they've gone up for mule deer and they've gotten to the places where they get up there and the water is a thousand feet, you know, 500 to a thousand feet below them. There's no water up there. Yeah, that can happen. All right. And again, if there's no water up there, the elk aren't going to be up there either. Most by and large, elk are going to be utilizing areas where they can have free water each day. They need to drink. Okay. So you may get up there and not find water, number one, if it's dry, which is going to suck. And that means you're going to have to figure out a plan B to drop down somewhere so you can get water and so you can figure out where the animals are. Flip side, if it is raining and the animals are up there, hopefully it's not lightning storms because I'll tell you, brother, that is where you're just going to get just pelted with those just rocking, rocking thunderstorms, lightning, 
All right, it can be brutal. And then if you're hunting later on in September or if you get a cool early year, I've been literally, well, I wasn't personally, my buddy was. I hunted my high country camp one week, went, did other things. My buddy went back the next week and got snowed on, started raining, and then it turned to snow and the snow started coming down so hard, so heavy, so fast, and so wet he barely was able to get himself back to camp and get off that mountain because it was just, it just, it literally was flattening everything. Those snowstorms can come in and just absolutely pummel you, all right? So they're harsh environments. So if you're scouting a mountain range like this, understand you're going to the edge, so to speak, on maybe what you can do, and you're going to go to the edge on environmentally what can happen on that mountain. It's oftentimes boom or bust, all right? And it, because of the shape of the mountain, oftentimes it takes significant effort to get there. Versus if you want to kind of give yourself maybe some flexibility, maybe not want to kill yourself, but but you want to, I don't want to hedge your bet, now I'm going to say hedge your bets. If you need to gamble on what the weather is going to do, sometimes these big, rolling, lazy mountains can be a better bet because around that mountain, you probably have multiple places where those elk have gone and where you may end up running into animals. And you may have different places around that mountain that actually have water that you can access. You have different rate, oftentimes, don't quote me on this because every forest is different. Oftentimes, the nature of these style of mountain structures oftentimes lend themselves to recreation a lot better. So you may have more trails, you, more, more, you might have more access, which means from a hunting standpoint, yes, you may run into more hunters in there. There may be more you know, public pressure in there, but it gives you a little bit more flexibility over time, over the years, in different environmental factors, precipitation, weather events, cycles, okay? It might give you a little bit of a different option over the long term, all right? So keep those things in mind when you're scouting and when you're getting ready to, when you head to your elk camp, okay? Re always, always just visualize your mountain where you're hunting as a sponge. And just keep that in mind when you're figuring out what the water is going to do on your mountain and what the vegetation is going to do in response to what the water is doing. And then where are those elk going to go? Where can they go? What is the connectivity of these different areas? What that, you know, this area dries up, this one next, this one next, this one next. All right. We go back to what I said in the beginning, picking plan B areas, plan C areas. These are the this is a great reason why I tell you to pick a plan A and then a plan B, and then a plan C. If your plan A starts to fall apart from a vegetation quality standpoint, an elk activity standpoint, where is the likely next best place on the map? Maybe it's down in elevation. Maybe it's to the heart of the mountain rather than those ridge lines. Maybe They've moved up and down the mountain. Like I said, 
if you think about the San Gerda Cristo Mountains or even Aspen or some of the other big mountain ranges, yes, it might be steep, but this may be a long ridge that just comes out of the surf, you know, comes straight, right straight at you. It's just a long ridge in all these little finger ridges. So if you take your hand, okay, angle it with your fingers, so you basically make your hand into a 90 degree, okay, bend your knuckles, keep your fingers straight. The top of your hand is the ridge, and each finger coming down is a ridge, and you got those valleys up. So you've got all these little, that's why they call them finger ridges, okay? Got all these finger ridges coming off the mountain. Maybe at the north end of that range, it's getting pounded with rain, but the south end is brutally dry. Well, if, it, if there's connectivity and trails that connect those, the elk simply just may move laterally down the mountain just to get to the place where the rain is falling. But if the entire mountain range is not getting water, that's when they may drop off of that mountain, drop down in elevation. And then, in worst case scenarios, maybe if that entire mountain ridgeline range structure is not getting water, you might have some animals just move all the way across the valley and go up the other side if that is where you're getting better moisture. Same thing. They may go up and over just to hit a different aspect of that mountain. Maybe get to the more shady, cooler, wetter side of the mountain, which is generally those east and north-facing portions of the mountain versus those south and west-facing portions of the mountain that might be a little drier. Okay, The elk are going to move. They're going to go where there's better, better forage availability and better water availability. Okay. If you can dovetail that, if you can dovetail where they might want to move to with the information, like I said in the beginning, maybe calving areas, maybe traditional migration routes, movement corridors in some of those transition areas, the better off you might be. Now, and I haven't even talked about private, the public-private land interface. That throws a whole other monkey wrench into the whole situation anyway. Just in the fact that, yeah, sometimes in some of these mountains, like for instance, the San Gerda Cristos, it's a great backcountry area, but the low elevation stuff oftentimes is buttoned right up against big private ranches. And those big private ranches, maybe they run cattle, maybe they run alfalfa, maybe they run agriculture operations. Guess where the animals are going to go? Yeah, they're going to go down and they're probably going to hit private. It's not even just sangries. You can find that across the West. Wyoming, Montana, okay? People all the time are, are complaining about that public-private land interface and, and where the elk are going. Sometimes the habitat quality at the top of the mountain can push them or make them or cause them or encourage them to move and make that move sooner than what human pressure causes them to do. Just have to be cognizant of that, plan for it, have contingency plans, and uh, yeah, monitor your hunting area now to see what it looks like. Now, real quick, I'm going to end this. Don't need to keep beating it to death. Obviously, this is talking about, I've been focusing on that stuff about the big mountains and alpine and, and above, you know, above treeline. This is exactly the same if we're talking about a mountain range that's, say, 10,000 feet and under. The top of your mountain is the top of your mountain. That's the top of your sponge. Just understand, lower elevation, lower mountain ranges 
uh, are going to be different based on the geological structure that they have. If there are a lot of crushed granite, okay, so there's there's places where you can like, okay, let's round it, let's just bring it back, and I'll end it. I said I like ponderosa pine forest habitats. Well, ponderosa pine by a species, by nature's default, it is adapted to crushed granite substrate. So in Ponderosa Pine Forests, you can find many areas that have very thin, poor soils, and then maybe over a little bit, way, little, little ways over, you could find little creek bottoms or whatever that have really great soil profile. There's a lot of diversity of that soil profile. So just because you drop down an elevation doesn't mean you just automatically pick up better soils and better moisture retention. Not necessarily the case. There's plenty of, of ponderosa pine forests that are just bone dry. Especially if the top of the mountain isn't getting rain and the bottom of the mountain is, or, or the lower elevation in that area is also that where the ponderosa pine and oak brush type stuff is. Well, if they're not getting rain either, that stuff's even going to be more dry Okay, because again, it's crushed granite substrate. It doesn't hold moisture, right? So just because you drop down an elevation doesn't mean you get out of this entire dynamic. It all depends on what the geology of that area is and what it looks like. It's just where you're going to have to go figure that out, okay? Talk to the resource professionals and you call the Forest Service and say, hey, listen, this is where I'm thinking about hunting. What what do the soils look like? I mean, is there a lot of good grass around and is it really, you know, lush? and really nice or, or are we talking really rocky and dry with trees just kind of outcropped here and there i talk I, in the past i've talked to about this for aspens sometimes people will say they look at it and i do i do i do i'm looking out across this mountain maybe i'm in the mid elevation areas and i see i start to see aspens okay what kind of aspens am i looking at because aspens by default like to have a little bit more soil moisture but aspens don't necessarily need to have except, you know, overly deep soils. So you can find aspens growing out of scree slopes and rocks, old rock slides where it's just rockier and all get out. There's moisture underneath it. But these aspens are growing out of almost rock, just boulder fields and just really cobbly, rocky stuff where there might not be a lot of vegetation underneath that aspen stand. Versus, you can also find aspens that are in those areas where you have these deep soils and the just the grass and the vegetation coming in underneath those aspens is phenomenal because just the way the groundwater moves, that area has a little bit higher soil moisture. There's more water that those aspens can utilize. So not all aspen stands are created equal either. It's going to take you to go out there and confirm and verify if. Just as an aside, real quick, if we're talking about these steep vertical mountains and there's a patch of aspens, now, if the steep vertical mountain down here, you've got this large, just big honking stands of aspen, okay, the soils in here are probably gonna be pretty good. But if you're up here, well, you can't even say that, that's above tree line, okay? But if you're, if you're talking, you know, side of your mountain, Here's your side of your mountain coming down like this, and you've got a little pocket of aspens, little pocket of aspens, another little pocket of it, and they're just these little isolated pockets, 
little little blip here, a little blip there, a little pocket there, a little bit. On the steep sides of slopes, oftentimes you're talking about rocky areas in there that just may have a little bit more groundwater. Go over and check them out, but don't be surprised if you don't have a lot of vegetation growing in there. Versus on these big, late, you know, maybe down low, you got these big, huge, expansive span, uh, uh, stands of aspen. That's probably going to be a better soil moisture. Likewise, on these big, lazy mountains, all right, maybe you've got these big blocks of aspen on the landscape scattered in and out with pines in between them or in, in throughout them. Not anymore, the way the forest management is, you get, a lot of our aspens are getting choked out by pines. But if you've got these big blocks of aspen, most of the time you're going to have a different soil structure in there and you're probably going to have better vegetation so as a little scouting tip but anyway all right i'm gonna kill it if you got any questions fire away we can do a follow-up on it but i wanted to cover those two things for you because these questions always come in about this time of year about scouting about what's going on in the mountain and i think they related well enough together that i wanted to cover them together so awesome thanks for following along again if you got any questions jump on the forum Fire away. If I need to do a follow-up, I will.